What's up, everybody? Welcome to the Deer Vein Podcast. Today, I have a great guest. His name's Les Welch. He's an all-around awesome dude, with, and he does a ton of whitetail bow hunting, but also spends pretty much all of September in the woods out west chasing elk. Uh, he's an admin at Rockslide. And uh, are you pro staff with Sidka and Kafaru? Is that what the Instagram is that what the Instagram says? Yeah, there's a number of yeah. companies. I should, I should probably update that Instagram a little bit. Um, <laughs> but, but yeah, no, I've been with Sitka since 2010 and Kafaru since I think 2011. So uh, okay, got a good got a good run with those um, both great yeah. companies. No, that's awesome. Uh, so, and everybody today, we wanted to kind of go over shed hunting. Um, first of all, because Les does a lot of that, and he finds a lot of them, which is which is different from me and good to know. Uh, and then we're going to kind of talk about hunting whitetails in general, and then we're going to jump into a little bit of Western planning. So uh, if you're thinking about doing that first elk hunt or first mule deer hunt, um, we're going to kind of talk about that at the end and just kind of give you guys a rough idea as to what's going on there. So to kick it off, Les, I know you just got back probably like a week ago or so from Kansas for from just a straight shed hunting trip. Is that right? I, I did. It was a very short turnaround. Um, we got basically a day and a half of shed hunting in. It was a blast. I had beautiful temperatures, uh, seven, upper 60s and 70s for those day, day and a half. And uh, coming from, well, you know, Wisconsin, it's been 20 or 30 degrees and a foot to two feet <laughs> of snow. So there, there was no snow. It, it was a blast. We had a good time. Oh, that's awesome. So pretty much like t-shirt weather and, you know, you're hot and you're sweating the whole time. Oh, totally. I had a, um, I wore a pair of Sitka hanger pants and then, um, a t-shirt. And when I got back, people were like, did you take up cutting last weekend or what? My arms are just shredded, you know, from plum thickets and <laughs> blackberry briars and stuff. So, uh, yeah. Oh, man, I bet. So, uh, the, the shed hunting trip, can you, can you tell me about it? You said you had a day and a half there and just kind of go over what you guys did. Yeah. Um, we had, uh full day on Saturday, I think we put in, I'd have to look back at the numbers, but I think right around 16 miles. And on Sunday we had to, so we were central Kansas and my friends Ann and Corey are out of uh, Denver, Colorado area. So I actually flew in, I was at uh, Leupold out in Oregon for a few days for work and flew straight into Denver. And then the following morning we got up at like 4 a.m. and drove to Kansas to a buddy of mine, uh, Nate and Kate Anderson, who um, are owners at Headhangers. And, yeah, so they're oh, just good that. friends. Yeah, we all get together. We all love to nice. shed hunt. Yeah, good good company. And so there may have been a fireball or two drank, but there was uh, a <laughs> lot of laughs for sure. <laughs> oh, but, yeah. You yeah, we uh, out the booze <laughs> the whole lot. Yeah. We'll, we'll plead the fifth. <laughs> no, yeah. so uh did you mainly walk like private land or we public or um both private and public this this trip was actually uh the first trip that i've ever had that was geared with a higher percentage of private land which was kind of fun uh the, the yeah. thing with kansas um the parcels that nate has are all small parcels literally anywhere from like most of them are five to 20 or 40 acres. And if you've been in Kansas, you realize how, or central Kansas anyways, the amount of trees that are on 40 acres, um, like I could probably stack them all in the size of my living room if we put them side by side. <laughs> so okay. it's, it's, 
it's definitely a different it's a different type of shed hunting here in Wisconsin. Um, it was a total switch gears for me. Like I had to open my mind to a different thing, which was really cool. Um, it's just it's just like hunting. I, I mean, you bounce from one state to another, hunting one species to another. You have to be able to adapt. I mean, it's just key. And we did. I mean, we found sheds. Sure, you would find them. Our biggest set actually came underneath a lone tree that was, uh, you know, hundreds of yards from any field row. It was literally a big, mature, probably seven and a half year old buck, six and a half year old buck that bedded under this tree and dropped a 170 set of, you know, antlers laying there. And then the next antler he found was 600 yards away, right out in the middle of some CRP, uh, you know, just a buck that was transitioning when he dropped. So it was a lot of fun. Um, def- definitely different. Yeah, it sounds like it. So pretty much it's just like a lot of tall grass, like matted down, big field, big like CRP fields that you're just walking through. Yeah, exactly. A lot of CRP. I mean, we've, I think we picked 23 antlers and I, I would safely, very, very safely say there was probably two to three or more times that amount of antlers left behind because it's such, so hard to, to cover it. And we were covering ground fast looking. Um, you know, we had a lot of ground we wanted to cover, so we didn't, we didn't search it super hard. There was a chunk of CRP that we know, um, there's probably eight or ten just off of camera pictures, antlers laying, if not in, real close around, and we found one antler. Um, so we know there's a pile of them there, but just, just trying to find them when you're in stuff that's anywhere from knee to head high, it's, it's pretty tough. Oh yeah, that, does the snow help mat that down or no? Uh, they don't get a lot of snow there. I mean, it, it, um, there's there's some here and there, but no. I mean, a lot of that CRP was um, uh, waist high, some of it shoulder high, and all of it in oh. knee high. So uh, even yeah, finding okay. even finding the old shed that um, I think in all those antlers we only had two that were um, not brown ones that were that were a year old. Uh, they just get covered up in the grass so much. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. And then you don't, do you really have the squirrels down there to eat them or do mice get a hold of them or, or anything like that? I'm trying to think in every, I think every antler we found, there was only one that had a slight tiny bit of chewing and it was like on one time, if I remember right. Oh, nice. Yeah. So those things kind of just hold year over year. So you got opportunity to come back. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, the, yeah, you know, like I said, the problem there is is the grass covers them up. If you get into some of the wood rows or field lines um, where you don't get that tall CRP or the grass, then you're you're okay. But the, just the percentage of finding them, unless they burn, when they go through and burn those CRPs, it's like a gold mine because the antler doesn't burn, but it, then it sticks out. You got white on anything that's black. So that's what uh, that would be ideal if you could uh, find those. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just go through. Hey, we're having the burn. Let's do it. Nah, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I remember one time they had a uh, a burn by me. I'm in central Wisconsin, and uh, they burned one of the CRP fields, and the DNR did. And I walked, I like looked at that, and I was like, "Oh my god, this thing's got to be a gold mine. I'm gonna find a bunch of antlers in here, and it's gonna be easy picking." And uh, my buddy was the biologist, and he goes, "Oh yeah, no, every time we burn a field, we go looking for antlers too." <laughs> yeah, yeah. Just like, yeah, I suppose that makes sense. <laughs> our buddy Luke um, um, Nate's best friend he is uh, I turkey hunted with Luke this last spring in northern Kansas and he actually manages um, exactly what you're talking about he does the burns he does the plantings he does the management of those properties and I, I can't remember how many thousands of acres he's got but yeah he's, you should see his shed piles uh, he goes and burns them and then it's like oh there's one there's one there's one there's one and it's funny <laughs> because he doesn't uh, 
he would much rather go kill a duck than look at an antler. So it's like, and we're like, ah, you're killing us, dude. <laughs> right. Give me a call next time, man. <laughs> right. For sure. Uh, do you, do you go to Kansas? Is that, is, do you go there for the camaraderie or do you specifically go there to like shed hunt? Are you there? Like, I, does that make sense? Is that a good question? Like, okay. It totally does. Yep. Um, with, with Nate and Kate, um, they've, this is a, this is a long story, but I should probably, or not long story, but I, I should probably kind of just fill this in. As we were talking about this, like some of my best friends now, um, it's funny, I met through a little tiny Sitka show in Denver, probably in, I don't even remember, if it was 2014 I was out there and did a show, and this couple came into the booth, uh, Ann and Corey, and hey, you know, we talked hunting a little bit, and they looked at the gear, they were fans, whatever, and then the following year I was there, and they came back in, and I remembered them, and we got talking, and we, you know, we hit it off again, and 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 Ann had said something. I'm like, no, you're kidding me. I know exactly what you're talking about. Um, and, and this is really like a small world because we're in West Denver. I'm in North Central Wisconsin, and her dad lives uh, um, in North Central Wisconsin, less than a mile from one of my random bear baits. And I, I knew this when she said this little random tiny lake. And so we kind of stayed in touch and became social media friends, and that progressed. And I met Nate. Um, with headhangers through Sitka at an event. Um, I don't even remember what show, if it was in Iowa, Deer and Turkey or Madison a couple of years ago. And, um, and his partner Luke and we became friends. And so it just kind of evolved and, and we've, we all love to shed hunt, which is funny. So, uh, Ann and Corey had us out this last spring and we went shed hunting. We found, I, I can't even tell you the, the amount of antlers we found, uh, in one weekend. The, the inches was, <laughs> Um, in the thousands, literally, we had such a good time. And, uh, oh, so, yeah, so, yeah, very fair question. And I'm going to have to honestly answer and say it's the camaraderie. Um, because we're such, we're, we're in a triangle of Kansas, Denver, and Wisconsin. And, uh, it's not really easy to see one another for, at least for me, because I'm kind of the oddball out there, only about six hours apart. But, um, so for, <laughs> yeah, for, for me, yeah, it's, it's definitely the camaraderie. And then you throw in, like, seriously, probably my biggest passion. Probably as much, if I had to pick bow hunting or shed hunting, I would, if I could only do one forever, it would honestly probably be shed hunting. Um, so, yeah, so I, I would say camaraderie first and then, because uh, those all just really good people and then throw in one of our passions and God, life doesn't really get any better. Yeah, no, it's a, it's a good time. It's like going fishing with your best friend or something like that, you know. Um, but, yeah, it's going shed hunting. Uh so then, do you do any other, like, shed hunting only, like, specific shed hunting trips outside of Kansas? Oh, yeah. I have, uh, right now, I have a 10-day trip planned to Colorado. Uh, when that, that doesn't open up till May 1st. Trying to get one coordinated with some friends in, um, well, I mean, my same friends, but, uh, with some other friends that have, uh, possibly an in forest in Wyoming to get some elk and mule deer looks in there. And uh, honestly, I'd like, uh, we left a lot of bone in Kansas, so I'd like to go back. But it's just uh, it's getting that time of year now where it's going to be hard with with everything that's going on. But uh, at least one ten day yeah. trip to Colorado, and I'm I'm actually hoping maybe a second trip back to Colorado. We'll see how it goes. <laughs> no, that's awesome. So in Colorado, are you specifically looking for elk sheds or elk and muleys, or just muleys, or what are you doing there? Um, yeah, we're all kind of antler freaks. So it'll be mostly elk, but, 
Yeah, I'm sure we'll spend a few days lower looking for some deer stuff. Um, but I mean, elk are just, I have, I never get sick of antlers and, and being from Wisconsin, I've got a lot of whitetail antlers and I've, you know, been fortunate, lucky enough to harvest some, some whitetails. And, uh, I just, right now elk are at the top of my list and I do believe Nate's and, uh, and Corey's as well. So we'll focus on elk as much as we can, pick up a random mule deer here and there and then maybe take a day off or two to just look for mule deer. Yeah. So. Like this is this is my ignorance showing, but do you have to look in different like areas for elk versus mule deer? Like, do they have different wintering grounds? Or yeah, um, yeah. yeah, and 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 it's not that they're necessarily, from what I've learned from Corey and Ann, that they're not necessarily a real big distance apart. It's an elevation thing versus a um, oh, distance okay. or location thing. You know, sometimes uh, I'm actually um. I'm leaving in a day here, uh, today's Sunday. I'm leaving on Tuesday, flying to Denver for a couple of days, um, do a little bit of fun stuff. But then on Saturday, um, we're actually going to go hit some private land because it's, Colorado's got a shed season, doesn't actually open until May 1st, but on private land, you can shed hunt year round. So we're going to go hit some, uh, I say lower country, uh, and look for some meal deer because most of the meal deer will be done dropping here and the elk are very on the edge of just starting. So, Okay. Uh, the the elk will be following. See, they don't they don't lose their antlers until you know starting now, but most of them will be gone around the first of April, and they're following that snow line back up. So they'll be up higher. The, the deer have already dropped, even though they're kind of wintering in the same areas. They're real close. The deer have dropped, but the elk haven't. But the snow is receding, so the elk are starting to climb back up, and they'll lose their antlers, you know, as they climb. No, I think yeah. That makes a lot of sense. That's, that's really interesting because, you know, for me, just being Midwest, Wisconsin, it's, you, you don't think about that at all. Right. But, um, right. but no, that's cool. So then you mentioned Nate and Corey again. Are, are Do you three kind of go on trips just all the time together? Is that like your three things? Um, you know, it, it's just, yeah, like I said, meeting them through the shows um, and then putting – like Nate really wanted to do an elk shed hunt. He'd never found an elk um, shed prior to last spring. And Corey is Corey and Ann have found, you know, you know, they've been doing this for years and years, and they've got it nailed down, figured out. And then I've I've have whitetails in Wisconsin. I have nailed down. I mean, I shed hunting in Wisconsin is it's super fun, but it's a whole different ballgame than anywhere else. And so we got talking, and Nate's like, literally, I, you know, I'll, I, I'd sell one of my kids or, you know, whatever. He says, I want to go find an elk shed. And I'm like, hey, I think we can make that happen. <laughs> and I, I, honestly, I mean, you know, shed hunting spots are like, they're like hunting spots, man. You, you, I don't know if you follow social media, but it's gotten to be such a game right now where, that, you know, when it opens up May 1st, people are going to be out in headlamps and they're going to be scouring those easy ones. And so it's like, hey, you know, I don't, just want to take any random person to, you know, shed hunting spots, especially when they're not mine. These are Corian and spots and they're going to take, you know, they're going to take me and then I'm going to ask to bring somebody else along. So yeah, we, um, we've just got to be really good friends and it's, um, again, more com camaraderie than anything, but yeah, we definitely plan the shed hunts together and, um, yeah, hunts as well. I mean, I, I I've, I've hunted, um, whitetails in Kansas for the last two years with those guys and Nate was in Colorado last year bow hunting elk um with with our friends there 
And, you know, we're all, we'll all be hanging out this next weekend doing a little bit of shed hunting, some hockey games. Uh, again, there may or may not be any fireball involved. Uh, <laughs> so it's just a good time. Yeah, that, that makes sense. Uh, so I kind of understand this, but could you lay out some people listening are probably like, how in the hell or why would you have a shed hunting season? So can you lay that oh. out for people? Yes, absolutely. That's a great question, and I probably would not have even thought to touch on that. Um, so the high country, um, like Denver right now, probably has zero snow on the ground. If you drive an hour to my friend Sam and Becky's, which I'll be out there in the next few days, and he, he's watching elk off of his deck right now with, you know, a spotting scope, they maybe have a foot of snow, and you know, an hour west of Denver where he's at, but where he's watching them with the spotting scope is probably two feet of snow, three feet of snow, and they're just kind of hovering on that edge. And as soon as they start dropping antlers, which he watched a set drop, oh, a few days ago, a week ago maybe, guys are diving in there because, you know, you monetarily, yes, antlers are worth a value, um, but... To us, none of us sell them. We all hang on to them. We do it for the fun. and But some people are doing it for whatever reason, and they're going to dive in there because one set dropped out of a herd of 40 bulls, and they're going to push those bulls. They're going to pick up that one set possibly, but then it stresses those animals because they are in two feet of snow. They've been wintering all, you know, all winter long. They don't have the great food, and it's just it's hard on, you know, their bodies as they're trying to um, prep for this next year so basically a few years ago it just shed hunting's got so popular they established a season closes i believe december 31st and then does not you cannot reopen to or it does not reopen until may 1st to pick up any antlers in colorado not sure about the laws in every state i know utah i got some friends out there um who are shed hunting right now on, on the public land so there's not a season there but i just know colorado for sure has got that season sure Yo, and that makes that that makes a lot of sense. You know, at the end of the like at this time of year, they're at their weakest point, and then people are going in there and pushing them around for the antlers, and it's just adding a lot of stress on their bodies that uh, that they don't need or want. They just want to you know let those elk be and recover, right? So that, I mean, that makes a lot of sense. For perfect, yep, absolutely, and and it is sad too. Um, there's we know that there's people who are, you know, breaking the law. The wardens, you know, you know, just like Wisconsin, we got one warden about every 100th as close as we need to have. And so people are going out and they're stashing piles and they're hiding them and they're, you know, going back in when it does open. And it's which sure. is sad because it's just, you know, I guess that's the nature of everything in life. There's probably always going to be something that's not kosher, but we definitely yeah. play it by the book. It's not worth it. And it's not, we just have it. We do it for fun. It's just a good time. So it's it's just right. not worth it. <laughs> no, that makes that makes. I I totally agree. There's always going to be some bad eggs, right? There's always going to be somebody that ruins it for everybody. Um, right. You know, or, or there's always somebody out there, and it's kind of like you know, I've I've learned to that you really need to judge a group of people like hunters or fishermen or like shed hunters if you want to get specific or bow hunters. Like you can't judge them by the actions of a few, right? You got to judge everybody by the actions of a whole. Absolutely not. You're correct. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, So one thing you mentioned earlier is you said you were at the loophole office, uh, which is pretty sweet. So what were you doing there? Like, what were you guys up to? 
Yeah, um, I had never been to uh, Leopold. Actually, I'd never been to Oregon, so that was cool. I got to head out there as soon as coron- coronavirus became something, so that was pretty fun. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, I get. Um, I laugh. I don't really, I don't overthink that kind of stuff too much, but um, I've been working with Leupold for a couple of years. Uh, again, I should probably update that stupid social media, but I, I try to um, be, be it vocal. It's not real left. I know, right? And I'm terrible. Like, like I'll, I'll, I'll be really good for like three days and I'll do a post for those three days in a row. And then it's like, I fall off the world for four days because I'm doing something like, God, I'm terrible. And this is why I'm not, <laughs> on social media. <laughs> no, I was, but, uh, just, just in like a little bit of research on this, I was, uh, I was looking through your Instagram feed and everything just to make sure I was kind of up to date on what you were doing. And I read one of your posts and it was like, Hey guys, here's a post. Uh, I'm going to be concentrating on hunting, so I probably won't post for a couple of weeks. Just follow the story. Bye. <laughs> like, yeah. That is, that is, that is real right there. It's kind of like, man, all I do is think about hunting. I don't want to go back take all these photos, put them into Photoshop, make sure they look good, and then set them up so that they get posted at specific times and stuff. It's just like, God, I'm trying to kill a deer. I'm not worried about taking pictures right now. <laughs> that's, you know, and that's 100% it. I could be so much better at that, and it's just not me. Like, doing it is my thing. Like, recapping it is not. I love photography. Um, I really went crazy on that. Or not crazy, but um, just, like, I super enjoy it. So I've really tried to to work harder at it the last two years, um, upgraded all my gear and my lenses and all that stuff. So I definitely document the moment and I've got tens of thousands of those moments on my hard drives. It's the part to go in from my hard drive that it's back to the social media part that I don't really succeed very well. At, but. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, now back to your question. Yeah. yeah Luke, um, I've been working with um, all those guys, Tim and Teresa and uh, Michael and those guys for a couple of years in, um, just a, a different aspect of they've got athletes and, uh, you know, I don't know how you would, you know, classify it, but you know, they're famous people, but they don't have, um, uh, a huge in the hunting industry, like a pro staff, a specified pro staff. So we've been kind of working sure. together trying to figure something out like that. And, uh, going forward this year with the tax, they're going to be, um, have a little bit bigger presence at the total archery challenges again. And so I just wanted to get out and see the factory and learn a little bit more about them. And I tell you, if you're ever in Oregon and especially in that part of Oregon and you can make a trip out there, definitely call ahead and try to set something up. Cause I, you know, I, I've been a, I'm a very loyal person um, when it comes to people and companies and these people are just really good people. Yeah. They make, Great ass glass. Um, their, their optics are awesome. But these people are phenomenal. And for me, I, I knew that going in there, but I had no idea what this company really was about. Um, this is 700 employees in Beaverton, Oregon, where start to finish, their rifle scopes are 100% made in the U.S. It's so cool to see yeah, that 700. Cool. Yeah. Dude, 700 people in this, they've got this big facility. I mean, I've got a machine and an engineering background of over 20 years. So I got to go down on their um, machine shop floor where everything's being made, man. Like they're, they're turning out tubes and dials and knobs and internal pieces and super cool. Um, and then they got, uh, Bruce, their CEO and president gave us a presentation. Um, I was out there with, um, 
uh, Aaron from Kafaro, Aaron Snyder and I and uh, Aaron's wife Amy and so they gave us this tour and uh, just super cool and then watching Bruce's presentation and, and then getting the tour uh, man you just walk away like man you just you want to pin that flag right to your chest it's so cool but yeah just no, yeah. That's awesome. Really? You know, one of the one of the things that strikes me about that is, you know, with pro staff and pro staff being like such a, what I want to say, like a drown out word word now. You know, what does pro staff actually mean? Uh, for a lot of people now, it's just like it's what a, it's diluted. It's a diluted word. Uh, it's it's really cool that you're working with, with Loopold and you've actually been to their factory to see how stuff's made and you get to hear from them firsthand. So then when you talk about it, you actually like, you know what you're talking about versus a lot of people who are pro staff about something. They just, you know, like they get their stuff in the mail. They just call somebody, they talk to them. They never actually see anything happen. And, you know, and that's, that's really cool to me that you actually went out there and got that all set up. Yeah. You know, and and you're a hundred percent, right? Like I don't even, I don't even know what the term pro staff, I don't know what that definition even is. And I don't even care to be honest with you. Like I don't, it, it's funny. Um, you know, I've, I've had a loophole scope in some way, shape or form for 37 or 38 years. Um, so I've, I've used their gear for decades before I ever became a part of them. Uh, Sitka gear. I, I own two complete entire Western hunting systems at full retail bought off the internet before I had any, like, even knowing anybody at Sitka Gear. Um, Mountain Ops, you know, I, I used their stuff before I knew anything about them, before I was ever at their gym, before I was ever at their facility. Uh, it's just that way with most of the companies at uh, Kafaru. I mean, I, if you ask Aaron, like, I was using Kafaru in 2010 or 11 uh, before Aaron was. And now, I mean... Uh, I can't really talk for him too much. He's got some big things in the works, but right now, I mean, he basically runs Kafaru. Um, so these companies, like, I don't even call myself, I, I don't care. I don't have a term other than I'm a very loyal person to those companies that I've worked with and that they return their, you know, product trust with me or whatever, however you would, would term right. that. I, I don't care about that pro staff terminology. Right. doesn't mean it's anything. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. No, I just want to do what I do, which is, you know, find something to chase down and pick up an antler or whatever, you know. Yeah. No, that makes a lot of sense. I was talking to uh, a guy named Eric Barber who works for Vortex Optics, and we talked about he's on the marketing side for them, and he issues and reviews uh, sponsorships and partnerships with Vortex. And he said the amount of people that don't even own our product and call us uh, to get sponsorship but they don't even own anything is astounding you know people who like have no loyalty they're just looking for somebody to give them free stuff or whatever yeah and it's it it goes a long ways i'm sure with the companies when you have people like yourself that are actually using the product and you buy it and you go man i really like this like and then at some point you meet them you say hey thanks for making a great product and then their relationship just evolves from there to whatever you know it becomes you're a hundred percent right like it's it's a, it is amazing, and I've seen it. I've worked a lot of events over the last few years, um, in the dozens, literally, that people come up and say, literally, not hi, not smile, not how are you, not, oh, that's a nice-looking blah, blah, blah. Hey, uh, how do you get on your pro staff? 
Uh, and then the next question is after you explain to them, hey, you know, we don't have a pro staff. We've got an ambassador team or whatever it is, blah, blah, blah. Oh, okay. Well, what, you know, how much, well, what is that jacket made out of? Or, you know, what, how much does that range finder cost? What does it do? It, it, you're 100% right. They just want a product that <laughs> say that, hey, I'm on a pro staff floor and then I'll maybe, I'll, I'll maybe I'll learn about it. I don't know. It, that doesn't, yeah, it's not how it works. Right. No, that's, that's interesting. That's, it's such an interesting world out there. Cause I mean, I, you know, you're a fitness guy as well. Uh, for everybody listening, uh, Les is also a seven seven time Ironman, right? Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Seven time Ironman. But you, I feel like people don't just walk up to Nike and say that kind of, or Adidas or you know Under Armour and just be like, "Hey, how do I do this?" <laughs> I feel like that's a, right. that's a humming industry thing. Right. Yeah. It, it is. And yeah. So I, I have some thoughts on that, and we probably shouldn't delve into those. Um, it could be a two day podcast. <laughs> so. No. No, that's fine. Um, okay, so, so the loophole, the, the loophole factory tour was awesome. I had a great time there. And, uh, I, I had no idea that everything was 100% made. You know, everything was machined there and built 100% there. I'll have to, I've never made it to Oregon, but I do want to get there sometime to chase Roosevelt. And when I do, uh, I'll definitely have to try to set something up there and get over there. I would, yeah, that, that, that would be a pretty fun trip, uh, Go to go to Leopold and check out their uh, built building, and you know just find out a little bit about their history and the background, and then uh, go chase Rosies in those forests would be pretty pretty wicked. Right? Yeah. Now I've, I've watched. Um, God, who are those? Who's uh, it's it's not Hush. Who are the guys who run around? So born and raised. Born, yeah, born and raised. Yeah, yeah, those guys. I've watched a few of their Roosevelt hunts, and those just look they look so awesome. Just that terrain. And how thick it is, and how much it's like a jungle. It's, right. Yeah, it looks really cool. Those. Uh, um, if if you guys listen and aren't familiar with Born and Raised Outdoors, ch- yeah, check out Born and Raised Outdoors. They've got a YouTube channel. It's uh, Trevor, Trent, Cody, Steve, Ty used to be part of it. He's um, in Montana now. Uh, just super good dudes, like down to earth. If you ever at an event or a show that they're at, go say hi. Um, they're some of the nicest people you'll talk to. Good elk hunters, and they get it done in rosy country. And man, I'm telling you, I don't know. I don't know if I want to go out there, dude. I, it's beautiful. Like if I get in some of those big forests where like uh, Donnie and Corey and David Brinker were hunting the last couple of years, yeah. But I see some of that jungle and go, man, I've been in some stuff in Idaho that I thought was bad, but that looks horrible. <laughs> right. That's like. You know, that's one of those things that's at a point where you go, well, is, uh, should I do a guide or should I, should I try this DIY? You know, but then it's kind of then, then it's like, all right, well, do I go out scouting early? Do I just, you know, totally wing it and hope to God I do right? You know, can I find a friend who's been out there? Or you just like kind of run the gamut of options before you figure it out. <laughs> yeah, exactly right. Um but yeah, before we before we get into the the whole western the western hunting stuff, because I do want to talk to you about that, is uh, I know like this year, uh, did you got uh, you got a buck in Kansas, right? I did. That's <laughs> pretty fun story. I uh, my so I do a lot of solo hunting, or I hunt with one really good hunting buddy, um, and I'm kind of talking like general hunting all around, elk hunting and whitetail. Um, Mike, he's out of Wisconsin here, so. 
him and I headed to uh, Missouri in the third week of October, and he ended up killing a deer right around the last, uh, give or take, right around the last of November. I don't remember the, or October, I'm sorry, but right around the end of the month. And he bailed out of Missouri a little early and went to Kansas, and I stayed in Missouri for a few more days trying to find something I was looking for and didn't. And uh, we had a rainstorm coming in, so I ended up leaving Missouri a day early, and it was about six, seven hours over to Nate's house. And anyways, yeah, again, I hate to keep bringing this back, but it's like when, when we get together, I don't know, fireball comes out. So <laughs> yeah, <that's laughs> we, uh, For me, that is kind of the, the not go-to drink. Like if I'm walking into, <laughs> you know, a grocery store or whatever, and they go, yeah, you want to get fireball? I go, no, I don't. I don't want to get fireball. Like let's just buy <laughs> Jack or let's just buy some. I don't care anything else. I will do peppermint schnapps all night before I drink Fireball. It's <laughs> funny. And I don't know what it is. I'm I'm a very in-control person. Um, I like to have a drink here and there, and I know that I'm making it sound like I'm an alcoholic, and I'm, I'm 100% the opposite. <laughs> but um, if, if I don't know. There's something about Fireball. Where like, let's throw down a Fireball, and then we'll get serious. But anyway, so it was like uh, – <laughs> It was, I want to say, around midnight when I rolled into his place. And, you know, uh, in the rut there, you're getting up at 5 o'clock to go hunting. Well, I don't think we went to bed until, like, 2 or 2.30 after just catching up. Hadn't seen one another for probably four or five months. And and um, we rolled out. We were late. Uh, we crawled into the stand. It was definitely <laughs> shooting light. And uh, just BSing. We're sitting in the same tree, and we're just literally BSing, um, just trying to get caught up, having a good time, just chatting. And, uh I don't know, we'd smack the horns together once, and uh, I think Nate uh, was turning around to say something, and he's like, uh, big buck, and I'm like, yeah, whatever, okay, and I cocked my head, and here's this, the buck I ended up killing, he's wiggling his way through some, I don't know if it was a plum thicket or what, at like 20 yards, he's going to step into a scrape at like 13 yards, and I'm like, holy crap, you know, and <laughs> yeah, I just uh, got got the bow and got swiveled around, and uh, I don't know if the tree wasn't the best to hide two not-so-tiny guys, and I don't know if he spotted something or, or what the deal was, but he got a little little sketchy looking at us, and then finally he kind of put his head a little bit away, and I could tell he was going to take a step. And So I was uh, testing that new Iron Will solid out and the new Matthews DXR, which hadn't been released yet. And uh, The Iron Will did you say solid or was that the wide cut? Or I'm sorry, yeah, you're right, the wide cut. So that was the wide, okay. wide 100. Yep, the wide 100 in the VXR. And okay. uh, he give, he gave me a shot that was not ideal, but it was 13 yards, and I tucked it behind the shoulder as close as I could, and that iron wheel did the rest. It, it entered right tight behind the shoulder, exited uh, mid rib. I knew we knew he was dead, but um, <laughs> we so we kind of. We're like, what did we just do? You know, we've been in the sand 20 minutes. And, uh, <laughs> That's awesome. We got, yeah, we got down, looked for an arrow, found the arrow laying right there, blood right away. And we had, literally, I, I still haven't posted any of this. It's going back to all that stuff I store and never post. But I've got some video of this blood trail. Literally, it's just picture taking a milk jug and a Sharpie marker and jamming the marker in the bottom of the milk jug and then walking along. It was about as wide as your thumb and a solid stream for the first 60 yards and huh. then uh, believe it or not yeah uh, and then like 
six minutes, five minutes after the shot, believe it or not, we jumped him, and he uh, run out into a field, and we were able to run out to the field, catch him running back in. After about a 100-yard run, he was running back into the woods, so we're like, yeah, we'll just back out, let him be, and I think we went and checked a couple other trail cameras and BS'd a little bit and come back, and he was, where we saw him disappear, what we thought was back into the woods was he actually made it to the wood line and fell into the grass. He was dead on the run. We watched him die and didn't know it. Oh. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I hear it seems like that seems to be the case. Like sometimes, I mean, I, I yep. willing to bet that people who do, that's not the case don't tell the story. Like, yeah, I jumped them and I lost them. Uh, but, uh, but yeah, you like, I've heard a couple of stories recently where it's like, yeah, we watched him bed down and that's where he died or he just disappeared right here. And that's where he died. You know, you come back and he's just stiff as a board. Right. Yep. So, and he was, he was a beautiful deer. Um, I got him sitting on my kitchen table on a head hangers pedestal right now. still trying to decide. Um, um, I'm running out of wall space here. So I, I hate to not <laughs> mock. Uh, he's a 150 inch deer. He's a mainframe 10 pointer, beautiful deer. Um, so just still trying to decide what to do with him. Yeah. But beautiful deer, fun yeah. hunt. Um, yeah, just a, a great time. And then, uh, so, your prior. Very, very serious question here though. Does, uh, when you get out late in the morning and you get up in the stand and everything still works out, doesn't that really kind of demo- demotivate you to get up early next time? <laughs> not, not, not during the rut. Um, the rut is so, it's so special. And I'm, I honestly, like you said, I do. I spend all of September in the mountains. Um, this year it was August 23rd to October 1st. I spent in the mountains. So I don't get the whitetail hunt early anymore. Um, I'm not a big fan of a mid-October whitetail hunt, especially in Wisconsin. You know what it's like here for the most part. Um, yeah. so I use October as a catch-up and then I'll start, I'll start whitetail hunting around the 20th, 21st of October, but then I'm, I'm, I'm calling that a rest hunt. It's, it's early pre-rest, but that yeah. sign is there. I, I'm looking at funnels. I'm looking at, you know, uh, the sign that's there. So I, and during that time, any time in October or November, I'll tell anybody, if you can be in the tree stand, if you're an hour late, go. If you're, if you can get there at the right time, which is, you know, whatever that is for you, maybe it's 10 minutes to an hour, minute, hour before shooting light, great. If you can only go from 11 to 2, go 11 to 2. There's never a bad time when, when deer are horny. Right. No, I agree. I got, uh, I got two comments there. One, I got a buddy who shot a 160 inch buck on October 13th at 11 a.m. And I looked at him and I was like, why were you in the tree at 11 a.m. on October 13th? And his response was awesome. He just said, well, that's when I could get out. <laughs> so I was like, all right, man, whatever, whatever suits you. But, uh, I'm, then you got, I, go ahead. I, I'm a hundred percent in agreement with that. Right. I'm sitting in my living room on my couch right now and I'm looking at a deer I killed, um, on October 9th. At 10:30 in the morning, uh, so you know on October 9th, uh, there's nothing yeah. supposed to be happening, and it's daylight at 6 a.m. or or whatever, 5:45, 5:30. I don't remember, but I've been in the stand way too long. I was sleeping actually, and I hear this crunch, <laughs> crunch. And the the only reason I was there literally is because it was a nice day and I wanted to shoot a doe, and I saw the split times coming. I was like, holy crap, it's the six pointer, and I ended up killing him. Like I said, at 10:30 in the morning, he's he's a clean six pointer. He's got brow tines and he's got G2s and he's got main beams and he's 128 inches. Killed him at 10:30 in the morning on October 9th when he should have been 
he should have been tucked away sleeping for the remainder of the day. So you just never know. Right. Yeah, no, no, you don't. And then uh, the other comment I have on that is every year there's a day between October 20th and October 25th. So I've been running really heavy trail cameras for the last three to four years. Four years, been running about ten trail cameras, on, and I always move all of them to scrape come uh, come mid October. And there's some day from the 20th to the 25th where the bucks are just on their feet. And it always seems to be like the 23rd, the 25th, you know, and it's just, you can't have, you can't have bad time in the woods on those days. No, you never know. Any, like, like you just said, basically from the 20th of October on, it's fair game. You never know. Yeah, most of them are going to be, it's going to be a little early, but you only got to be that one person with that one deer in that one spot at that one right time for to go, heck yeah. Yeah. No, I, yeah, it all comes down to 10 seconds, right? That's what I always tell myself if I'm going to stay later or get up early. It's like it, it all matters about that 10 seconds. It, it does, yep. Um, so you mentioned one other thing you mentioned, and you were going to tell a story. Actually, you were going to tell a story about uh, your Kansas hunt the year before. Um, yeah, that, not, uh, I hunted with Luke, so there's a couple partners and headhangers, Luke Douglas and Nate Anderson, and, and, um, they, I had, I wasn't gonna hunt Kansas that first year, um, I've hunted Kansas in the past, but I had, I didn't, I wasn't gonna do it that year, I was just gonna buy the points, and, like, no, you need to come to Kansas, you gotta come to Kansas, you know, and they just rode me, finally, I told them, like, the day before the application, it was like, guys, I can't, I do not have my research done, and I'm a research freak, like, that's why, I, I 100% feel that's the reason my elk success, um, for the greatest reason, has been successful is research. There's a lot of contributing factors and people, but research, research, research. It comes to that with whitetail too. And uh, I'm like, I haven't done the research. I don't know where I want to go. I don't even know what unit I want to apply for, much less what areas I want to focus on, much less have any boots on the ground. So I, no, I'm not going to. And they're like, dude, just get here. We've got ground. We'll take care of it. And anyways, they peer pressured me into it, and I. <laughs> Um, it, it was really good. I, you know, we took and we set up my wall tent and on some property and Luke and his wife, Alicia came over one night and we BS and they showed us a couple of small chunks of private property we could hunt, but we had thousands and thousands of acres of public as well to hunt. And Garrett Rowe had the decoy. He came up one night and had a couple beers with us and sat in the tent. You know, it was kind of like an elk camp, you know, we just big wall tent set yeah. up with propane and, and just a good time. And, um, we hunted hard. We hunted really hard for a couple of weeks. And, um, I seen some gaggers, man. So, uh, three booners and around 27, if I remember right, Pope and Young bucks. But it was a style of hunting, hunting I hadn't done yet, you know, and it was all CRP and open rolling. And, you know, you, you had to use a heads up decoy or you had to get in front of them. Um, or you had to try to rattle them in on the ground because there just wasn't no trees in these areas. And, um, Mike ended up killing a nice one on, um, uh, one of Luke's, family small chunks uh just it was a chunk you look at and go yeah what but Luke <laughs> always said if, he said if i he told us this a couple of times he goes if i could pick anywhere to be in november it would be in that spot right there and that's where mike ended up killing a really nice um 140 inch ish um buck and then uh it was funny it was literally at the same time but like probably 50 miles away even though we had the same base camp I killed a seven and a half year old mature um, eight pointer. He doesn't score well at all. He's just an, and, and I passed him up four or five times. I'd have to go back and look at the cam, the video. Um, four or five times throughout that morning, I'd rattle him in or 
or snort wheeze him in and I let him go. He just wasn't the inches that I was looking for. But every time he came in, he added more to the memory. And finally, I was like, it was like whatever time it was. And I passed him up a bunch of times. And I'm like, if I rattle or snort wheeze and this sucker comes in again, I'm going to kill him. And wouldn't you know, <laughs> I went through the rattling sequence and the first deer come around the corner, ears laid back. He was ready to fight at 25 yards with this buck. And sure enough, he walked up. I made a mock scrape the day before and hung a camera in front of it, like nine or 11 yards in front of my tree stand. And he walked up, ears bristled, ready to fight, didn't see nobody, saw that scrape, walked over, faced the camera, lifted his head back to, you know, work the licking branch as his front feet stood in the scrape as my arrow blew through him and then the camera took a picture of him. So it was pretty cool. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, I'll have to, I'm going to, you'll have to send that to me. Because uh, I'll make that like the profile picture for this episode. That's that's really cool. Do you have Do you have a lot of luck with mock scrapes? That's something that I've actually never done. Um, I don't do it as much as I should because I'm a very mobile person. Like, I don't hunt private land. Only if I'm going to be a hundred percent honest, over the entire years, like of all my hours sitting, it's probably five percent or less of private land. So. I don't know where I'm going to hunt a lot of times um, until I find that spot, especially afternoon sits. Um, a lot of times I'm, I'm hanging hunting, and I'll never be in that tree again. I'm looking for a particular sign when I'm whitetail hunting, and if I don't have that sign, I'm not hunting. I, I'll, I will walk until I find the sign, or I'll go sit in an old spot that I've hunted before that I've had luck because it's a funnel between A and B or a transition from somewhere or something. But I, I – this particular spot, I knew I was going to hunt because it was a Y, where three locations came together. It was one of the only draws around, had some of the only timber around, and it had food. So I knew over the course of the next 10 days I would be back in there a few times if I hadn't tagged out and the wind was right. And it just happened to be that the next day that, you know, he stood in that mock scrape. But, mm-hmm. yes, yeah, uh, to, to answer your question in a roundabout way, when I do make mock scrapes, a lot of times I'll put cameras over them, even though I don't know that I'll ever go back and hunt them. But I know it's a good area that the deer will pass through, even if it's at night. And the deer really do use them a lot. Sure. No, I did something that, so for my, just in my personal opinion, I've always, I've, I've, always, I've hunted public land a lot. And that public, like, I never really wanted to make a mock scrape because I didn't want to alert other people to an area that I was kind of hunting. And not that you would know exactly how the human made it or anything, but then I also just thought in my brain, like, a, where a natural scrape is, is also kind of a natural travel route, and it just, it, it's naturally set up to be hunted, and so I always just thought that, you know, a natural scrape was more effective than a mock scrape anyway, so I just never made them, but I've been, so this new piece, uh, my family bought 100 acres in August of last year. And I found on the whole property, I found two scrapes. So I really, like, I really didn't find a whole lot of them. So this coming year, I'm going to make a bunch of them. And I talked to a guy who used to hunt it, and he said he used to make three mock scrapes. He had them positioned out, and he goes, I'd kill a deer on one of those scrapes every October. And he's like, I don't know why they don't really make them, but they don't. And he goes, I just make them, and then I kill a deer on them. (laughs) Yeah, how does that go? If you make it, they'll come. (laughs) (laughs) Right, right. Um, So so one of the other things you mentioned in your story was that you were testing out, uh, aside from the Iron Wheel wide cut, which is something that I 
am intending on getting my hands on here over the next couple months. But uh, you mentioned you, that you were shooting the, v, the new VXR. Um, I just bought that. Uh, well, I didn't. I bought it three months ago, and it came in yesterday. Uh, so I, uh, I'm i getting it all set up on, on Thursday and everything. But you the, – actually, the reason I bought it was I messaged you. and was like, what do you think? And you were like, I'll, I'll sell my Triax and my Halon, and I'll buy another VXR with it because you just liked it that much. You're, yeah, exactly right. Um, so I, I do get a lot of questions, and I buy a lot of bows. Like, every year I buy multiple bows. I think I'm sitting at eight in my basement right now that are less than two years old. And it's not um, – I, I want to know about them. I want to know how each one shoots. I want to know how it feels. Um, I just get asked a lot of questions, and I like to have that knowledge. And, I, and I'm an archer. I've always been that way. I've never been a big – longevity bow type person i like i turn over bows um a lot but so i've got you know i've got matthews i got prime i've got hoyts i've got botex all in the basement and um yeah you're you're exactly right that is what i said um except i believe i said i would sell my verdict and my traverse because I was yeah go okay sorry <laughs> yeah no you're you're right though because i did i just sold the triax as well um and the halon 32 <laughs> probably left a year ago so um that DXR is is amazing. Like Matt McPherson is such an innovator. I, Matthews is about an hour ish, hour and fifteen from my doorstep. And like I said, I've got a background in machine and engineering, and I've been through their shop, and I've talked to the guys, and I know the guys, and just to see it all made there, and and just to sit down and talk to Matt is seriously amazing. I guarantee you, um, what he's got planned for twenty twenty three, even though I have no clue what it is, is going to blow our mind because I, I don't think the VXR can get any better. But I guarantee you, he's already working. I know this for 100% on his bow for 2023. So he's got 21 and 22 in the works, and 23 he's got in his mind, and it's, it's being um, worked on right now. So it, it's just it's such an amazing bow to pick up. It's like when I picked it up and shot it, I'm like, it's an extension of me, which that's hard to explain. No, I, I – and I'm not – I want – it's one of the things that I really want to work on over the next few years of my life is just becoming a better all around and more knowledgeable archer in general, you know, start buy your own press, start doing all your own work and start messing and, and tinkering with things. But, uh, so with, with like those eight bows, you just put the same, I, I would imagine you have the same draw weight and the same draw length on everything. Do you just put the same arrow on every one and, and tune it in and sight it into that same arrow? Generally, yes. In the past, I've done it. I'm going to back up just a little bit about um, just 30 seconds what you just said about being a more of a tinker and setup and stuff. I've so I've done that. Um, like I, I managed a Shields Archery Store here in Eau Claire when I went to college over 20 years ago, and so I've done bow setup for a long time. If you want to see something, I think was kind of neat. I don't know that it's ever been. I'm sure it's been done before, but it's never been in a review that I know of. My last Rockslide review on that VXR. Um, if you go to Rockside, go to the forums, look for the VXR review. Um, we did that on the fly. I took my bow press with me. I had my truck camper on, got the bow, literally strapped the bow press to the back of my truck and built that bow and set it up. Got the sight, got the, everything on, done, shot it, sighted in, and was hunting with it, you know, basically overnight. Um, so that's kind of interesting. That's pretty sweet. That's really cool. Yeah, super 
super fun. Um, it, definitely not everybody's cup of tea because not everybody likes to tinker and do that kind of stuff, but I like to tweak my own stuff and do my own setups and stuff. But um, to, to answer your arrow question, I've been shooting Easton either ACCs or FMJs for over 20 years, and it's been FMJs for at least the last 10 or 12. Whenever they came out, I don't even know. And so then I, I do, I pretty much all my bows are either, they've always been 70, but I did order the Traverse and the Verdicts at 65 pounds and the Prime CT3 and 5 last year. Um, and the RX3 all came at 65 pounds if they were available. Just, and if not, then I turned the, that RX3 down to 65 pounds just for the comparison. So everything felt the same, everything shot the same just to see the difference. But, um, yeah, so anyway, uh, yeah, um, this year I've just been talking with a couple of different buddies. Um, my buddy Sam and Corey out in Colorado and then Bill at Iron Wheel. I'm going to build some arrows this year a little differently. Um, you know, Bill's got all of his footers and stuff too. So we're going to um, just build a new setup for me to tinker with this year. I've never had a problem. I shoot in retrospect to what a lot of people shoot. I shoot a fairly light arrow. Um, I believe Nate said he was shooting like, gosh, it was something crazy, like 6.8 grains. And I'm, I think I'm around six or five, nine. I just, I've never gotten into the real heavy arrow. The, you know, you're talking per correct? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yep. Yep. And okay. Um, I, I can't remember. I believe my FMJs are like 10.2 grains per inch or something like that. Um, but my whole, my whole arrow weight is like right around 430 grains and I'm shooting 70-ish pounds, depends, 71, 72, maybe 69, somewhere in there. But I've never had an issue. Like, I think 70% of the bulls I've shot have passed completely through, one of them lengthwise from chest to rear quarter. So, but we're, yeah, we're going to, we're going to play around a little bit this year, building every heavier arrow, just see how it affects light and go from there. Sure. No, that makes sense. And you know, like you, if you watch people argue on, you know, I, I enjoy the – I never comment, but I enjoy just reading all the comments that people put on, you know, the Facebook and the Instagram posts about heavier light arrows and stuff like that. And everybody's counter to, like, people say, shoot a heavy arrow because you get better penetration, shoot a light arrow, and you your your sight pins are closer so you have less um, – you, you have less room for error. So then, you know, accuracy is more important than weight. And it's kind of, I've come to the conclusion, like me personally, it's whatever works for you. And and it also depends on what animal you're hunting. Like for, for me, 95% of the time, I'm trying to kill a whitetail under 30 yards. So, you know, I build an arrow for that. And I think people get caught up in trying to build like an arrow or build a system for an elk when they're hunting, you know, I guess. That's, that, I shouldn't say that. Cause, I mean, you, you do want a heavier, like, you might want a heavier arrow. Do you, do you shoot the same arrow for both whitetail and elk? 420 grains? 430? My, my setups are identical. I don't, when I got yeah. one thick shooting, I shoot all eight bows, all one bow for whitetail, for antelope, for rabbits, for turkey, for elk. Doesn't matter. Yeah. No, yeah, and I just, I just, I think a lot of people get caught up in like, oh, I need to build an elk arrow now, or I need to build a whitetail arrow, or I need to build, you know, different arrows for different animals. And if, if you're really good and you're really accurate with this one, just, you know, shoot it in the heart. <laughs> I'm, 
you know, it, it, and I, I definitely cannot disagree with you. I, I agree. I mean, I, I think there's a balance. I mean, you know, of being too light or being too heavy. And, but when it comes down to it, I, I don't know. I'm, I know that me personally, I'm not shooting elk at 100 yards. Could I? Sure. I, I've shot a lot of elk and I've shot a heck of a lot more whitetail, but most of those animals, um, I've killed one elk at 48. Um, I'm just, I'm kind of going backwards here trying to think of the elk and I killed one at 27. I've killed one at three yards, one at four yards, um, one at nine, multiples between nine and 15, and then only like three over 20. So yeah, I would, so when, yeah. yeah. If I have my accuracy dialed down and I'm shooting 429 grain arrow or 639 grain arrow, I don't give two shits what, as long as I hit where I'm aiming, I'm right? good. Yeah, at 10 yards, I don't think you're going to have a problem. <laughs> right. Now, you know, yeah. I, I guess where I think I might have a little difference and I would err on the other side would be the lighter arrow for total archery challenge when we're shooting, you know, your close arrows are 35 yards and your long arrows are 140, 150, 160. Yeah, I probably want that lighter arrow just to go shoot. And I'll probably set up a bow that way because I'll be doing all the total archery challenges again this year. But for my hunting setups, it's dial it, get it set, dial it in, and then go kill stuff. Ah, uh, that makes sense. Yeah. So, um, is that, is that something? So one of my fears is like, I get into setting up archery and I get, you know, I get the press and I buy all the gear and I get it going. <clears throat> and then I have to like relearn how to do everything every year. Cause after I get everything set up, then I'm not going to change it or putz with it for, you know, three, four months. And then I'm going to have to relearn it again the next year. Or is it something that's kind of like, just like riding a bike, like, you just understand, you remember how to do it, and you're off and running. You're talking about, like, um, setting a bow up, twisting cables, yeah. and stuff like that? No, man, it's yeah. just, uh, it, I took a long time off from it, actually. Like I said, 20-plus years ago, I was doing it every day, you know, setting up 10 or 12 in the fall, late summer, fall. Sometimes you would set up 10 or 12 bows. Um, so it becomes second nature, but then I did kind of get burned out on it. So I would, you know, I have my certain people I trusted. I'd buy a new bow and tinker a little bit, I'd just take it out, say, God, set it up, this is what I need, tell them the numbers, set it up, and then I could do final tweaks on it, but man, there's there's really nothing, and I guess it, there's you could probably find from A to Z on YouTube as far as the quality, but it's nothing that once, once you learn it, you'll understand it, and yeah, maybe you just want to call up YouTube and say, oh, what? how did I tie that knot, or, or you know, do I need to twist the cable three times this way, or it, no, it's, it's super simple, it's, it's hands-on um learning very easy gotcha okay yeah no i'm i'm kind of excited about that i just gotta gotta get into it um okay well we're cresting we're getting pretty close to an hour here and before i let before um you hang up on me here let's talk about uh western hunting a little bit so me personally uh i've been out elk hunting three times twice in colorado once in idaho uh, the two Colorados were in September. The one in Idaho was a cow hunt last year, rifle, and it was, I did it August 1st to the 10th. So it was a really interesting hunt, and it was just kind of like ambush before they get to food. Uh, sure. This was all on the private. <laughs> so it's just kind of, one one day we actually watched all, we had a, a herd of about 12 cows that were using an alfalfa field 
we watched them stand up under the irrigation system in the alfalfa field, feed, and then lay back down. <laughs> like, well, we can't kill them. <laughs> Good luck. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, but, uh, but anyway, tell me, uh, so if a listener, somebody's listening to this, and I, I'm going to pay attention to this for sure. Uh, what, how, what, I guess tell me your, a little bit about your elk hunting background and what drew you to going out west. And then also kind of, like, I kind of want to get into, uh, how you apply and when you apply and things like that. Sure. Um, so I've been in the woods, um, I just turned 45 and I've been in the woods since literally I was three years old, just when my dad had me doing hunting, fishing. Um, he was more of a fisher than a hunter, but when he couldn't fish, he hunted and that got instilled to me and I'm more of a hunter when if I can't hunt, eh, if I can't fitness, then I might fish. But, um, I have whitetail hunted forever and I loved it. Absolutely. It's, it's my passion. Archery hunting whitetails is just my passion. It'll, it'll never go away. It never will. But my best friend from high school, Sam, he had been out, he'd been on a couple of elk hunts and I think he'd even killed a bull and it had got me kind of intrigued about it. And he's like, ah, dude, you got to go elk hunting. And I don't know what it was, but in like 2000, um, seven, I was like, I watched something. I don't even remember what it was. I was like, I got to do that. And I literally, it was early 2007. I started planning my elk hunt. Um, I started researching and. Um, that was both sides at the time. Rock slide did not exist at that time. And, uh, so I started researching both sides and doing that. Okay. This is what I need. And I started buying things. I'm not kidding you. In 2007 for my elk hunt, my first elk hunt <laughs> did not start until September. Um, what the heck was it? September 9th of 2009. So for two and a half years, I researched and bought gear. Um, cause I don't like to buy <laughs> gear more than, you know, once or twice. I, I do now. Um, but then, you know, like I, well, if I bought something, I wanted to buy the best that I could. So I, you know, I bought a Western mountaineering bag in 2008, you know, it was $500 and I was like, Oh my gosh, you know, and anyway, so that's, I will credit my elk success to research and then more research and then, you know, a certain few people, but Sam triggered that, um, elk hunt. And so he was, um, he was a part of that in 2009, we headed to Idaho man and i had a plan um youtube and um onyx just the mapping capabilities like we had a plan we were going to x marks the spot in idaho we were going to park the truck at the trailhead it was three miles cross country there was no trail there we were going to set up and i was taking 16 days worth of gear in there and i was going to tell them out. holy crap i did a lot of research but man it, nothing could prepare me for that first trip we um <laughs> you had 16 days I had 16 days from the time we left the truck. I was taking food for 16 days in my backpack. Like, I, I'll send you a picture, man. Like, you will not believe it. My pack was 127 pounds. That did not include. It did not include my bow, which was on my shoulder, my swaros, which were on my neck, my rangefinder was in my pocket, all the gear that I could stuff in my pocket. So I'm, I'm not kidding you. With all my gear, I was probably pushing 150 pounds for that day. Damn. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> right? We hiked for 13 hours that day. Um, Sam has not outfitted with me since that day, but um, <laughs> <laughs> did he also have 150 pounds, or was he like, "What are you doing, man?" He's like, "Dude, I'm just gonna come back out halfway through." I'm like, "No, that gives up one day of hunting. I'm not gonna want to do that." But um, 
we hiked. I'm, I'm not kidding. We hiked for 13 hours that day. We started in the dark and we ended in the dark. And um, oh my god, we wound up. Yeah, 13 hours later, we were back exactly where we started sitting at the truck. <laughs> oh, really? Why? What happened? Uh, we were about three and a half miles cross country to where we were going to set up camp. And I learned so much from that one day. Like I could spend hours talking about that one day and how it shaped my elk hunting. But anyways, we got into where we were going to go and it took us on that 13 hours. It took us eight hours to get in there. And uh, we got there. We were out of water. We couldn't get water. We had a water source picked, but we couldn't get to it. It was steep, shale face, goats, sheep, elk probably could. And we maybe could have if we were really, really careful um, or had ropes to get down to it. But I just looked at Sam and said, dude, this, you know, we kill an elk. It took us eight hours to get in here. How are we going to get an elk out? And uh, the worst <laughs> part is that morning at daylight, we walked past elk 600 yards from the truck that we're bugling because we wanted to go set up camp at our spot. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, but, man. Uh, that is that is a definite thing that I learned. Like, you know, the biggest thing that I learned, and not to interrupt you because I wanted you want me to keep going, but elk hunting, like whitetail hunting, is a destination hunt. Like, you go, you pick your spot, you go to your spot, you sit and you wait, and that's the same mindset that you kind of had on that first day, and that's the same mindset I started with as well. It's a destination hunt, and elk hunting, the second you close that truck door, you're hunting. Yeah. Like, it doesn't matter, you know, you go where the elk tell you to go. You're not going to a spot to check it out. You're just wandering until you find them. That's exactly right. And a lot of people do not understand that. So, uh, uh, no. so keep going, yeah. Yeah, average elk success is around 10% archery, um, uh, which, in 100% honesty, it boggles my mind with the resources and the people available why one in 10 people bag an archery elk is hard for me to fathom, but I, I do get it because I see it every year. Um, anyways, uh, back, back up a little bit. Uh, we were back at the truck that night. Uh, the following morning, I mean, it was a long day. It was the hardest, probably most physical day I've ever had in my life. Um, Sam as well, probably. I mean, I cramped up. I laid with my pack on my back in 75 degree heat after like 10 hours. I lay on the ground for like 20 minutes. I couldn't move. Both hamstrings were locked up. Um, but the following morning, I was up. Before daylight, packing my pack, getting ready to go hunt, and um, I killed my first bull elk that night. Um, uh, basically, it was my first day of hunting ever elk archery. I killed a bull elk, um, and it's just kind of set the tone for that hunt. Sam was, you know, I mean, uh, I can't shortchange Sam at all. Uh, he um, was definitely responsible for, you know, helping me get that elk, tag that elk, pack that elk, getting the fire started, and he's killed multiple bull elk on his own since then. Um, but literally, I have, I knew that day when I tagged that elk that I would never miss a September again unless, you know, something major happened. Um, I will, I, I, I have went west every year since and the trips just keep getting longer. You know, my trip this, this elk season was five weeks out there in the mountains and we killed a lot of elk this year. It was super fun. That's awesome. Uh, okay. So, so if, if uh, if I'm if I'm new and I'm getting into elk hunting, like, I mean, you said research, 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 and you essentially researched for two and a half years, three years before you even started hunting, and just kind of like on a whim, like from what I understand, Colorado generally has the most amount of elk, so that's where a lot of people go. It's easier to get a tag there, so that's also where I, why a lot of people go there. 
Um, if I'm starting out, do I want to go to Colorado? Or, or are there better so try Montana or Wyoming or Idaho or Utah or there's um it's a really good question but you you were right with your first statement Colorado's got more elk than any other state Colorado's probably got more elk than multiple states combined the opportunities are easier they're less expensive than other states and literally you can park your you can park your vehicle on a highway literally I seventy and walk off I seventy and go kill an elk um. It's not a bad place. It's definitely not a bad place to start. Um, you know, New Mexico is an amazing elk state. Arizona is an amazing elk state. But Arizona, you're talking, you know, $150 application fee, essentially. And, you know, multiple years. You might wait 20 years to hunt the premier elk units in Arizona. Um, Colorado, you go buy that over the counter for $568 in your set. Or you could go to Montana and buy, you know, a combo tag for $1,100. There's less elk. There's going to be, you know, probably less pressure. There's fewer trailheads. Um, in general, maybe some better quality bulls here and there. It just kind of depends what you're looking for. I don't think you can go wrong really with any state. You just have to be careful what you're applying for. There's areas in New Mexico and Arizona. Yeah, you don't want to apply. There's going to be a late season tag that the elk have migrated out of uh, or something like that. But if you pick a Colorado, um, you won't go wrong. I would never tell anybody not to go to Colorado for their first elk hunt. I mean, I've killed multiple bulls there. Hunter, my son, killed his first bull in an OTC unit. We backpacked six miles into a wilderness, and he killed a six-by-six six bull um, at 13 years old. So, I mean, it can, <laughs> yeah, anybody can do it. Uh, and I, I would tell anybody, I planned for two and a half years. I'm glad I did, but now I tell people, get Get your foot in the fire. Go. Like, if you're thinking about going out, just go. You'll learn more by going than you will by two years of planning. That planning will help, for sure. Don't get me wrong. But, yeah, just go. Get out there, experience it, ask questions. The forums are great. I've got some stuff in the works. I, I would um, – I'm going to get going this summer that I think will help a lot of people. It's going to be – I don't want to say one-on-one, but it's going to be face-to-face stuff. It's not – Corey Jacobson's got an awesome um, – thing out there. It's called Elk 101 University. Highly, highly recommend it. Um, just look it up. It's amazing. Yeah, like, it'll I cut, that. It'll, I did it. Yeah, I did the whole elk. All of us, the group that went out there, we all made sure everyone got it so everybody understood the same things and made sure everybody yeah. actually completed it. <laughs> you know? Perfect. Yeah. Uh, so, but yeah, I mean, yeah, that Elk 101 was, was fantastic. That was, that was pretty cool. Absolutely. It should literally, off of novice or a new elk hunter, should cut years off their learning curve. And then look up his YouTube, um, Elk 101, uh, Destination Elk. He's got V1 and V2. I'm, I'm just finishing up V2 because it's just been busy. But if you watch what, what those guys do and then you look up Barn and Raised Outdoors and watch those guys, um, Dirk and, and the Barn and Raised guys and then uh, Angry Mount and Jason Phelps, they've got their YouTube series. Watch those guys. You will cut so much time off of off of just being out there. Um, what I've got in mind is different. It's it's going to be more small. I don't want to say classroom because I don't do classroom type stuff, but like you know, a small group atmosphere where it's um, basically kind of like an Elk 101, but a face to face kind of thing, uh, much more personal and exactly like you're doing right here. You're asking questions, and I'm giving you my experiences, and I can tell you what works for me, and and that's all we can do as you know, as hunters, is find what works for you. Find your niche. Find your method. But when you find it, don't don't close the door on everything else, but exploit it because it, it'll work for you if you get it to work. 
Yeah. No, that makes sense. Uh, so if you're, if we're like researching, if I'm looking into elk hunting and I want to go to Colorado, uh, like, do you recommend an over the, over the counter hunt or do you think people should put in for points and wait to get that? Cause you said that over the counter, you know, that'll get your feet in the fire. That gets you going and gets you out there. So like, that's what you would recommend is just going. Right. Yep, yeah, absolutely. It, so I, I knew in 2007 I was going to elk hunt, and when I do something, it's pretty much all in. People who know me will understand that what I'm saying. But in 2007, I started building points, not just for my 2009 hunt, but for 20 years down the road. So I'm sitting on 12 points in Arizona. See, we're in 2020, so yeah, 12 points because I screwed up. I missed a year. Um, and I'm sitting on the same in Utah, and I've cashed in Wyoming points twice and uh, okay. Nevada and Montana. So I would say apply for points. Um, selfishly, I want to tell everybody, no, don't ever apply for points. It makes my draw odds better. But for yourself, yes, absolutely. Apply for those points. Buy an over-the-counter <laughs> tag. <laughs> Buy those over-the-counter tags, those fill-in tags in the meantime. But eventually, you're going to start stacking up. And that's where we're at right now. I'm sitting on six points in Colorado, and I don't want six points. But I've got a lot of really good hunts the last few years, and I've got the next few years lined up. I don't know when I'm going to be able to use those points. Just because I'm planning ahead, um, sure. I, you know, I I have heard of a few people. I kind of wonder what was shaking around between their ears that said, "Hey, I went out elk hunting once and I didn't like it. I'm never doing that again." I gotta think there's something going on there. But ninety percent of ninety nine percent of the people I've talked to who have went elk hunting are hooked hardcore. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it's, I I'm I'm hooked. I go every other year. So, and that's what I made that deal with. My wife hates it when I, when I'm gone for like two weeks without service. And now like she, she coaches volleyball, which runs through September. And now we have a kid too. I shouldn't say she hates it. She just, it's, it's not the best time of the year to do that, but, uh, but we figure it out. Right. <laughs> um, yeah, so I go every other year and it, it is, I learn something new every year and it's a totally different style of hunting. You know, like I said, you're kind of, and again, like I haven't, I have not killed an elk. I've ran into elk every time and I just haven't been able to feel the deal. But, uh, it's just, it's a totally different scenario and, and it makes, it helps a lot to be fit and in shape, <laughs> uh, which right. definitely comes into play and, and be mobile and moving. Cause I know there's been times when I'm with friends and we look at one mountainside or something like that and we know or we heard elk up there in the morning, and I'm like, well, do you want to go over there? And we both kind of look at each other like, man, that's a hell of a climb. <laughs> but it's also, how bad do you want it, right? Yeah, So it, it is, yep. And we um, pretty much, I, I got to kind of just preface, it. the last couple of years have been quote-unquote easier hunts, um, but we've backpack hunted, man, like, I've I've started I've started my hunt some years six miles into the wilderness, so that's all I'm back. And then you know you've got to get that elk out of there. Uh, being in shape is key. I I believe in doing that year round. Like I don't I see it on online on the forums. Uh, people say I I just do an elk tag. You know you're not generally drawing those elk tags till May or June. I'm starting to start getting in shape for my elk hunt to do an elk tag. And you know Friday I spent four and a half hours on the bike and then. My daughter and I ran a 5K yesterday and then the skiing last night. And 
I year year round is for me what where it's at. Uh, like like you said, if you look across there, you know bull bugled. I know my buddy Luke is gonna say, hey, "There's a bull over there. Let's go kill him." I don't care if it takes us four hours to get there. Let's go kill him. So right. yeah, be, being able to do that is definitely a plus. But also just if you're a whitetail hunter and you're going out west, it's a different style hunt. You're always for me. You're moving, moving, moving. You're, you you said it earlier. You when your door shuts, your elk hunt starts. I have no idea where I'm going to be at dark, other than knowing I'm either going to be chasing a bull somewhere or looking for somewhere miles from somewhere. I have no clue other than that, and I know I'm not going to be back at that truck at dark unless I've killed something and I need a pack or something. I hunt, Mike and I hunt. Um, whoever I'm hunting with, Luke. It's we leave in the dark and we get back to camp in the dark. We do not see our camp unless we're setting it up or tearing it down or packing meat. Nah, yeah, that's good, and that's that is also something that's really hard for white hunters because it's like ah, it's midday. Let's go back and let's grab lunch. We'll come out for the evening. You know, I know we did that a lot the first uh, the first year. It was just always like yeah, okay, it's, you know, eleven o'clock. Let's head back and we'll head back out around two. But then. You know, at the second year, we're like, man, why did we do that? Because you just waste, you know, like two miles or whatever of walking that you could have just stayed out there and just packed your damn lunch. <laughs> yeah. You know, You're 100% yeah. right. I We killed, um, so Hunter killed that bull I talked about a couple minutes ago in 2013. He shot that bull early in the morning, like 9 o'clock, and I literally had to fly him back to school. It was his last day to hunt. So we killed it, broke it down. We packed out. Took took a load of meat out, took the antlers out, took a camp out. I drove him, had to drive him all the way to Denver, put him on a plane, flew him home, and stayed at my friend Sam and Becky's uh, an hour from Denver, then got my truck the next morning, drove back, way back, got packed back in, finished packing his bull out, and got back into our camp where Mike was still hunting at dark. The next day, I was shot. I was absolutely beat. In and out, in and out. A trip to Denver and back. Yeah. Come back in. But I was up before daylight, hunted, got into bulls, whatever. At 11 o'clock in the morning, I sat down, had some lunch, was texting my buddy Sam, and uh, still all caught, man. I ne- we never quit. Never, ever. I let out a bugle, got a response. I was like, gosh, I think that was a hunter. We were in a pretty populated area. I'm like, I don't Hunter or elk, it's that time of day. I'm just going to leave him sit. Didn't say anything for 30 minutes. Let out another bugle. He answered back. I'm like, that was a bull for sure. Five minutes later, he bugled on his own. I could tell he was on his feet. A cow called back. A minute and a half later, at 11.51, he was dead. So, (laughs) I know, I I seriously know 50% of the hunters are back at camp having lunch, taking a nap. We take plenty of naps, don't get me wrong, but it's on a hillside above a wallow. It's on a hillside above a food source, on a dark timber trail. It doesn't make any sense. I can't kill a camp. I can't kill an elk from camp. So we, we just get right. our daylight to dark the way it is. No, it makes, that makes sense. And uh, that packing your son's bowl out is going to really help in 20 years when you're 65 and you'd be like, hey, you want to uh, fly me back? Or take me back to the airport. <laughs> you want right. to go back out there and get that <laughs> for me? Yeah. It's only it's only a couple hind quarters. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, nope. Sorry, right. Gonna, we'll never forget. 
Yeah, no, that's awesome. And it's a great it's a great note to end on. I know you got it's about nine o'clock PM here on a Sunday night, so I know you got other things to do tonight. And I really appreciate you hopping on last and we'll have to have you back in in August, uh, if I can catch you in early August or something like that, because I'm sure a lot of people are gonna really actually be starting to think about it. Um, you know, it's kinda like bow <clears throat> bow hunting where everybody takes their bow to the bow shop in August and September. <laughs> people right. really start right. to focus on everything. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sure you know that working at Shield. Man, I can't tell you how many rifle scopes I've mounted Friday night at 9 p.m. before rifle opener. Scary. Can you board sight this in at 150 yards? <laughs> We're good. Let's let it rain. <laughs> let it send. Great. Yeah. Yeah. That sounds good. Um, but yeah, man, I, I really appreciate you coming on. Uh, before we take off, where can people find you? Hopefully in the mountains, but I hope you don't find me there. So, um, <laughs> honestly, uh, so I, I don't do Twitter, Facebook, and social or uh, Instagram are kind of the two that I hang out on if I'm on there, and they're just underneath my name. Um, I, I have talked about this a little bit on a couple of other podcasts, and I have not. Again, I've got so many irons in the fire. I've actually got a podcast out there, and it's got an it's got an Instagram name and a Facebook name, but it's got about 20 episodes that are stored, and I've never released any. So, um, <laughs> it's it's coming eventually. Like, I don't know. Um, you can find you can find me on those two Facebook and Instagram for sure. Go to Rockside. Honestly, like if you guys have gear questions, if you've got map reading questions, if you've got general basic research questions, if you you know if you want to know anything, go to Rockside. I mean, we seriously have the best backcountry Western forum available anywhere. Um, just the resources there. I mean, seriously, they're the best hunters in the world who will actually take the time to help you. There's some really good hunters out there who don't want to be known and who aren't, um, you know, out in the social media world. So we'll never hear about those people. But those people who are available and willing to help you, we have the best crew there. Um, just reach out. If you see me anywhere, like, I, I will talk to anybody, answer any question. Um, if you've got my number, if you've got my email, uh, DM me, whatever. I'll answer those questions when I can. Um, if I see a ring at 2 a.m. and I'm up, I'll answer the phone call. I, I'm not better than that ever. And if I'm not, I'll try to return the phone call the next morning when I get up or whatever. But it, it does get to be a little hectic. So, you know, if, if you see me out, ask me. Or if you see anybody, any of us on Rockslide or Sitka or Leupold, any of the guys from Mountain Apps or Yeti, any of that crew, like, seriously, some of the best people, just reach out and ask. Don't ever be afraid. No, that's awesome. So for, uh, and I would agree with that. The people that I've talked to from the industry that are within those crews that you just mentioned have all been extremely friendly, very nice, very forthcoming, you know, very like just charismatic people to just have a conversation with. Uh, and, uh, two things, Les Welch is spelled L-E-S underscore W-E-L-C-H underscore. That's the Instagram. <laughs> And then rock slide does not have a C in it. So it's just R-O-K-S-L-I-D-E. And uh, I will also give very high props to rock slide. I spend a lot of time on there. I don't post a lot. Like, I haven't posted at all, I don't think. But I just I just enjoy reading all the comments and everything. And a lot of times I don't post just because I don't, like, my questions have already been answered. You know, you go into those threads, and there's so many questions that are already answered. You don't really have to, you know, go and ask unless you're really looking for something super specific. 
there's just so much information on there. So wait, what? You know that you actually use like a search? What? <laughs> I, I can't. I don't. I know. Really, I, yeah. Wow. I, I always yeah. feel, dude. I bet that's a real big pain for you guys because, like, you see somebody like ask a question, and generally, like, within the first five responses, there's a thread to the question that's been asked previously. <laughs> yes, exactly. And, and you know, and and I just kid about that because it is it's very prevalent. But I get it. You know, I mean, I was there back in 2007. I was excited. I jumped on the forum. I didn't want to read, you know, scroll through 3,000. Plus, hey, I got a question. You know, I thought it was the best thing in the world. But then, you know, 17,211 people said, yeah, here, 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 and here. Now I get it. Nobody's ever too big for that. So just yeah. The, the forums are there, search them, but definitely reach out and, and ask because, like you said, the, the industry people, for the most part, there's some tools here and there, but there are some really amazing people and have become some of my best friends, and I guarantee you, you know, see them, talk to them, sit down, they'll grab a cup of coffee with you or just sit and BS. Who does not like to talk hunting? Right. <laughs> yeah. No, it makes sense. All right. Well, it's been awesome having you on, Les. Really appreciate it. And, again, we'll have to catch back up in August before you hit the mountains. Sounds good, man. Have a good one. All right. Let's do it.